Pastor Samuel's a bit taller than me, and I was afraid it was going to be up here. And then I told him what happened at the church I pastor up in Indiana, Pennsylvania. They actually had to cut the pulpit. They like to remind me of that on a daily basis. Well, good morning, and thank you for the privilege of being here and bringing forth God's Word and having Almighty God by His Holy Spirit do a work in our lives. Just uh, if you have a bulletin, a program, just so you know, on page 12, there's an extensive outline. If you are one who it helps to write things down and to fill in blanks, by all means, please use it. If you are one who it bothers you to have, to have this test or kind of have this before you, don't worry about it. Just go to the backwards blank. And if you are a doodler, you know, a kinetic learner who has to be doing something so that you actually are paying attention, just doodle away. I don't care. What I'm concerned about is that God's Word penetrates into your heart and into your minds and therefore transforms us this morning. Well, as some of you know, I am Don Chapman's son-in-law. And Don, like any good businessman, knows that you should deliver on your promises on what you advertise. So with that in mind, I must confess that I've given you all some, a little false advertisement when I had Marshall tell you in the last couple weeks to be prepared for a message from Acts 7. Honestly, I want to use Acts 7 as a springboard for what I really plan on sharing with you in our time together this morning. See, Acts 7 is a fascinating passage. It's a fascinating passage as it details Stephen's response when he was brought before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling body, after some Jews had drummed up some charges against him, even bringing false witnesses against him, who said that he was speaking out against the temple and the law of God. Well, when the leader of the Sanhedrin asked him if this was so, Stephen responded with one of the longest sermons to make the pages of Scripture. And in that sermon, Stephen spoke extensively about God's dealings in the Old Testament. He began with Abraham, and then he moved from Abraham to, to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob and, and Joseph, and eventually spent a good deal of time speaking about Moses, and then eventually Moses' successor, Joshua. He then moved from Joshua to David, and David led to Solomon, and all of this in the context of building a temple, a house for God, which Solomon eventually did. He finished by including the prophets, which basically takes you from Isaiah to Malachi. So essentially, Stephen, in his response, goes through the entire history of the Jewish people in answering the accusations that were brought against him. Now, obviously, that's a quick summary, but I want you all to see how important it is that these subjects from the Old Testament, how important these subjects from the Old Testament are for our understanding in the New Testament. So how was this sermon received? They drove him out of the city, and they stoned him to death. I really hope that we have a little bit better results this morning. We'll see. Nonetheless, we should see how important it is for us to understand the Old Testament, to understand God's dealings in the Old Testament, for it informs us today. Now, I know a lot of you, if you're coming to Sunday school, you're learning Old Testament. Well, that's great. 
I want to encourage you this morning as we go through a quick Old Testament survey. My hope then is after this morning that every person, not just those going to Sunday school, but every person here will have a greater desire to study the Old Testament, to, to learn from it. For as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15:4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance in the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. We can paraphrase it this way. The things in the Old Testament are there to teach us because through them, we endure in the midst of our struggles and we are encouraged and ultimately, we find hope. And yet, and yet far too many Christians are biblically illiterate. They don't even know the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. And that, my friends, is to the detriment of the church, to the detriment to our witness outside these walls, and to the detriment to living God-glorifying lives. And that is unacceptable. In that great chapter of Hebrews 11, known as the Hall of Faith, the author of Hebrews calls those Old Testament saints our great cloud of witnesses. And yet we don't even know them. And so I hope that with some very large brushstrokes, we can begin to change that. And so let's begin in the beginning. Genesis. The opening chapters of Genesis describes a time and a place that we are not familiar with. Everything God created was good, and then God created man in his image according to his own likeness, and it was very good. Now that situation is unfamiliar to us because of what happens in Genesis 3. See, when God created man, he put him in the garden and gave to him the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then after showing Adam that no animal was a suitable helper for him, God created woman from man. Woman, Eve, was truly flesh of his flesh. Well, God gave them the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. But sometime thereafter, through the serpent, Satan visited the garden and approached the woman. And as Satan distorted God's arrangement, approaching the woman when it should have been the man that he went to, and as Adam stood absolutely silent, we watched the woman get deceived as she misrepresents God's word. And as she took and ate, she then hands it to the man, Adam, who is beside her. And with that, we see the crashing down of God's perfect creation. And the consequences of such dis disobedience are far-reaching. Initially, what we learn is that Adam and Eve, they learn that life's going to be way more difficult for them. Way more difficult for them in each of their particular, their respective roles, and they are banished from the garden. But even within this, God offers tremendous hope. Listen to Genesis 3.15. God says as he speaks to the woman, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking, excuse me, to the serpent, speaking of the woman, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush you, that's the better translation, crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, while he will bruise the, the heel of the woman's seed. So we already have set up for us battles 
There's going to be some battles taking place, battles between good and battles between evil. And there's going to be some pain involved. But ultimately, God will prevail. Now, sadly, we see that this seed is not going to be from Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, as another one of their sons, Cain, kills his brother. So that seed's not going to be Abel. And from here, what we see in the Bible is that the wickedness of man is so great upon the earth that God is grieved in his heart over his creation. And God determines to blot out man from the earth. But then one man, Noah, Noah found favor with God. Noah walked with God, and God commissions him to build an ark. And he builds this ark for God. God is going to send a flood upon the earth to destroy all the rest of the earth. But God promises to make a covenant with Noah, to spare Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And just as God told it, it was so. Noah built the ark. God told him to enter it. And then God closed the door of the ark after seven days. And then he sent rain upon the earth for 40 days. The global flood had done what God promised it would do. Listen to Genesis 7, 23. Thus he, God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark, with the animals that came on the ark, with his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So now the, the hope from, for that seed must come from Noah. He's the only one left. He's, he's the one it's going to come from. And God then blesses Noah and his sons. And listen to what he says to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the very same commands that he had given to Adam and Eve. So here we have a new beginning of sorts. But sadly, it does not take long for us to see that this sin problem that entered in the garden is not going away easily. One of Noah's sons, Ham, sins against Noah and as a result is cursed. And before too long, we see that this command to be fruitful and fill the earth, it's not being followed. And God is forced once again to, to act dramatically. And so we have this account in Genesis 11. It's called the Tower of Babel. And, and you begin to wonder, how is this seed ever going to come about? But then Genesis 12 comes. And it opens up with God coming to a man. And he comes to this man named Abram. And we begin to see that God is going to use this man in a special way in a special way, as he makes these tremendous promises to Abram. Here we turn to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promised Abram not just a land, but to make him a great nation. From his seed will come a nation of people, and to bless him, and he will be a blessing to others. So God is going to accomplish his plan through Abram. This promise from God is called the Abrahamic covenant. Abram's name will later be changed to Abraham. 
And so that seed now has been narrowed to this man, this man Abraham. And eventually Abraham has a son, and his son is named Isaac. But Isaac is no better than the others before him. He too has a sin problem. So it doesn't happen with him, although God does make that similar promise that he made with Abraham, he makes it to Isaac. Well, Isaac has a son named Jacob. And although he isn't the seed, he's not the seed. God makes that same promise to Jacob that he made to Abraham and Isaac before him. And something different does happen with Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Finally, we are moving from this one to one to one. Ah, 12. Now we maybe begin to see how we can get a nation out of this. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and the, the nation is becoming born. Of course, all is not well, though, with these brothers, as the 10 older brothers, they all have a part in selling the 11th brother, Joseph. They sell him into slavery, which is at least better than what they want. some of them wanted to do, which was to kill him. So we have 12 brothers, but one becomes a slave in Egypt, and the father, Jacob, thinks that that one who's, in, who's a slave in Egypt is actually dead. Clearly, the quality of the seed here is not exceptional. Now, what's fascinating here is at this point is that over time, there is such a great famine all over that area of the world that it threatens the survival of Jacob, his sons, and all their families. Well, guess who has food? Lo and behold, Egypt. And they have food because of Joseph. Joseph, who has risen to be the number two man in Egypt. Now, I wish we had time to go, go over all the events there because the life of Joseph is fascinating, but we don't. The key for our sake is to realize that this people group, Israel, Jacob, and his sons, they survive because Joseph, the sold into slavery and thought to be dead brother, was in Egypt and was put in a position to influence the Pharaoh and therefore be in a position to influence not just the nation of Egypt, but to all those who experienced this famine, but especially Jacob and his sons. Now, Joseph gives a wonderful summary of this in Genesis 45, 7. He says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. You want to talk about seeing your brothers sell you into slavery in a pretty positive manner? Well, likewise, brilliantly, he would say to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. And thus we see that God is ensuring that his promise and that his plan to bless all the peoples is going to come about even in the direst situations. And this is a good thing. Because before too long, those Jews who were in the land and doing quite well in Egypt, Joseph dies and the Pharaoh dies and the Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph or the things that he does. And the next thing you know, the Jews become enslaved to the Egyptians. And again, there seems to be little hope for them. But then God hears their cries. And he raises up a man named Moses. Here again, we don't have time to go through all the events with Moses. But rest assured, God delivered his people's 
from their enslavement to the Egyptians through two significant miracles that I want to point out. And there were ten plagues, so let's face it, there's a lot we can point out. But in the tenth of the tenth plague, we have the Passover miracle. And here the angel of death would pass over only those homes who had the blood of a lamb. They took the blood and they put it on the doorposts and then they put it over the lintel of the door. And if that doorpost had blood over, the angel of death would pass over those homes who had that blood of the lamb that had been spread over that. But all the others would experience the death of their firstborn. And it happened just that way. And so then the people of Israel were told to go, get out of here. We don't want you here. And so they did. Well, the second great miracle I want to point out happened as the Egyptians had a change of heart. And so they decided to take chase after them. They liked the fact that they had people enslaved. And so they go after them. And with the Jewish people seemingly hemmed in with nowhere to go, God miraculously parted the Red Sea. And he allowed the Jewish people to cross over But then that sea that was parted, allowed them to cross over on dry land, tumbles upon the the Egyptian army. And so we see again, God is still protecting that seed and was going to keep his promises. Well, jumping ahead rather quickly, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. But through the disobedience of the people, there's that sin issue again, can't get around it. The older generation does not get to enter into the promised land. That's a great account as the 12 get sent off into the promised land and they come back and 10 of them speak of only the negatives and two, Jacob and, and, and Joshua, or excuse me, Caleb and Joshua only speak of the positives. And they say we should go into the promised land, but the 10 went out. And because they went out, that generation who sided with them does not get to enter the promised land. Save two, Joshua and Caleb are the only ones of that generation that get to go into the promised land. The land that God promised all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abram. Well, eventually, Moses' successor, Joshua, he does lead the people into the promised land as they conquer much, but not all of the land. It's a wonderful high point for the nation in the land, the land that God had promised, resting But this, too, was too good to last. As invariably happens, a great leader like Joshua, he dies. And somehow, somehow, folks, the next generation forgets. If you ever want to have a lesson on passing it on to the next generation, here it is. The next generation, they forget what Joshua had done, what God had done. And so this is what we read In Judges 2, 8 through 11. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their father. So everybody who remembered Joshua, who was a part of that, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And as a result, this leads to a vicious cycle of disobedience that you can see depicted on our screen in this slide. And this is what would happen. There we go. 
The people would do evil in the sight of the Lord. They'd serve false idols and thus forsake God. Well, this would provoke the Lord God to anger, and he would give them into the hands of plunderers who would plunder them just as God promised. And they would be under this oppressive rule of these enemy people until they finally would cry out in their distress to God. And God would hear their cries, and he would raise up a judge. And that judge would deliver them from the hands of those who plundered them. And things would be good all the days of the judge's life. But then the judge would invariably die. And then the people would do evil in the sight of the Lord again. And the cycle would begin again and again and again. Just round and round they would go throughout the book of Judges. Well, finally, the people decided that they no longer wanted a God-appointed judge. They wanted a king, just like all the other nations. But here's the problem, folks. They're not supposed to be just like all the other nations any more than we are supposed to be just like all the other people. According to Deuteronomy 7, they were to be a holy people to the Lord, a people of his own possession. They were to be set apart by God for God. They weren't supposed to be just like everybody else. And so when they desire a king, God tells Samuel, Samuel who is the last judge over Israel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, they already had a king. It was God. It was God. And folks, every time we place something above God, We've placed a, a, an idol, a king in our lives over him, doing the same thing. Well, you know what? God gives them a king. They wanted one. He gave them one. The first king is King Saul. But through his disobedience, Saul learns that the kingdom of Israel will be torn from him and given to another tribe of Israel. And so King Saul loses it. The tribe of Benjamin loses it now moves into the tribe of Judah and into the family of Jesse. And in particular, the last son of Jesse, a young shepherd boy named David, a man after God's own heart, although not a man without his share of weaknesses and sins. One day, when David has some rest from his enemies, he determines to build a permanent house for God, a temple. But God does not allow him. Instead, he gives David these promises in 2 Samuel 7. God says, I will make a house for you. But wait, David already lives in a beautiful house of cedar. That's not the kind of house God's talking about. Not even close. See, God says, I'm going to build a dynasty from your family, David. God also says, after you die... Then I will raise up a descendant after you, and this king will build a house for me. So a house will be built. It's just not going to be from you. But then God promises things that clearly extend past this generation, this one generation and that one son, Solomon, who's the one who did build the temple. See, God says things like in 7.13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in 7.16 of 2 Samuel, God says, Your house 
and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Clearly, we are looking way past Solomon to forever. And we know that to be the case because the people of Israel believe that to be the case as well. If we were to look at the later prophets, we would see them still referencing God's promises to David and expectantly waiting for the day of its fulfillment, waiting for God to deliver this one whose kingdom would last forever. Well, sadly, those prophets had to be expectantly waiting because of what happened after David and Solomon. The kingdom was split. It was split into two. And so you have north, northern kingdom, and southern kingdom. Two different kings over each. And eventually the, the northern, northern kingdom would be exiled by Assyria around 720 B.C. About 130 years later, the, the southern kingdom would follow suit, but this time not to Assyria, but to Babylon. And so both southern, northern and southern kingdom exiled, not even in the land. What a mess this people have become. We have no land. We have no king. We have little hope for a seed. Well, in the 20 or whatever minutes that we just took, we just took you from Adam and Eve through the entire history of Israel. That was a big, broad brushstroke. We took you all the way into the exile by, of the people by Babylon in the 6th century B.C. Now, some of you may think, so what? Who really cares about all that old, ancient history? I don't care about what happened five years ago. You're telling me stuff that happened 25, 3,000 years ago. Why should I care? Who really cares? The fact of the matter is you should care. You ought to care greatly. Now, you ought to care because some of the things I mentioned in the introduction. You ought to care because all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that you may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You ought to care because if you're not, you're missing so much about God and so much of His Son, Jesus. If you have ignored the Old Testament or put it in that category of unimportant. I always get kind of freaked out when someone tells me I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm like, well, they didn't have Christians in the Old Testament. They didn't even call them Christians until Antioch. So, yeah, you're a Christian. And, it, and what they're saying, essentially, is, I don't read the Old Testament. That's a book for other people in another time. I'm like, oh, you mean like for Jesus, because that was the Scripture that he read. So you ignore the Scripture that Jesus read. You ignore the Scripture that Paul taught on. Really? It is far from unimportant, folks. Far from unimportant. I mean, let's just give you, again, broad brushstroke. Let's take Adam, for example. What do you make of Paul saying in Romans 5.14 that Adam is a type of him to come? Well, that him is capitalized because it, it belongs to be capitalized because it speaks of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Adam is a type of Jesus. You need to know Adam, who for the record Jesus considered to be a real man, you need to know Adam so that things make sense, like when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's salvation stuff. That explains how we are saved. In Adam, we're dead. In Christ, everything changes. And thus we sing, In Christ alone my hope is found. Because it's not found in anything else but in Jesus Christ. You also need to know 1 Corinthians 15.45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And you know who that last Adam is? Jesus, the life-giving spirit. Of course, the entire account from Genesis 3 on shows us the desperate plight mankind, mankind is truly is in because of sin. How we have a heart problem. We have a sin problem. And as that faithful remnant probably wandered through all those accounts, from where will this seed come? Where is the seed going to come from? We don't have to wonder, do we? No, we don't. We know. From a virgin, in a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, and His name is Jesus. And then with Noah and the flood, which, by the way, Jesus also referenced this as a real event, we see the utter sinfulness of sin. We, say, we see how all sin and any sin rightfully deserve God's wrath. But we also see God's mercy. God's wonderful mercy in preserving this one family. We also see that, that God led Noah into the ark via the door of the ark. And as many have said before, we have to enter through the one who said in John 10, I am the door. And that is none other than Jesus. We're also reminded that, that just like the ark, it is God who closes the door and not man. It's not us. We don't close the door. And what I mean is this. We do not pick and choose who we share the gospel with. As if we determine who's allowed to enter through the door Jesus. And we do this so many times. Well, that person, it doesn't deserve to be a Christian. You're right. They don't. And neither do you. And so we don't close the door. God is the one who closes the door. Our job, our, what we're called to do is to have beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. To share the gospel and let God take care of the rest. Too often we determine when that door gets shut. That is not for us. That is for God just as it was back in the day of Noah with the ark. And then think about Abraham. Well, folks, Abraham is all over the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes about Abram consistently. But I want you all to hear what Zacharias says about Jesus. Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is born, and this is what Zacharias says regarding Jesus in Luke 1, 72 and 73. Zacharias says that his impending birth, Jesus's, is an act of mercy toward our fathers, an act of remembering his holy covenant, the oath which God swore to Abraham. In other words, the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled with the coming of the one who his son will prepare the way for, for Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises that God gave back to Abraham in Genesis 12 that we've looked at. And isn't it true that all peoples of the earth are being blessed through Abraham by way of Jesus, who according to Matthew 1 is in the line of Abraham? And where the people of Israel, remember Israel is the descendants, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob turns into Israel, the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel. The people of Israel were called to be a channel of God's grace to all peoples, even after they were taken into exile, even when those promises seemed impossible to have fulfilled, the people of Israel continued to refer to Abraham and this covenant that God made with them, that he made with him and passed on. They knew that God was going to fulfill it because God is faithful to his promises. And so Zacharias rightly praises God for the Messiah to come for Jesus because he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. But that's all Jewish stuff. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul brings it in and tells us in Galatians 3.14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, that's you. That's me. And aren't we thankful for that? So through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are included in the spiritual blessings promised to Abraham. And then in the account of Joseph. Joseph, we see our glorious God and how he sovereignly works through even the wicked deeds of his people. Remember those brothers that sold him into slavery. God works through those wicked deeds to accomplish great things on behalf of his people. And in that account, we learn how God miraculously placed Joseph through many trials and through Joseph being quite faithful in the perfect place to preserve his people and therefore his plan to make them a great nation, to give them a land, and to bless them and have them be a blessing to all people groups. And so we see that God is faithful, that God preserves his promise to Abraham. And God shows us that he is able to use even the wickedest deeds of others to us in our own lives to turn them into our good and for his glory. That's one we could all learn, isn't it? Anybody here have a brother or sister sold them into slavery? And yet Joseph sees that and trusts God throughout that because he knows God is sovereign and is able to use the wickedness of others for our good and for his glory. And I pray, folks, that each of us, like Joseph, that our vision of God like his is so great that it dwarfs the sin of others in our life so that we trust him and continue to work out, that he will continue to work out his plan and his purposes. I pray that we would be as faithful as Joseph is. I pray that we would see how God sovereignly worked through the wicked deeds of the Romans and the Jewish people in order to accomplish the greatest thing through the cross of Jesus Christ, our redemption. In the predetermined plan of God, you nailed him to the cross, is what Peter says in Acts 2. And I pray that we would see that God is at work in our world events today. Our world is a mess. 
but God is at work right now in the mess of, this, of these events today to accomplish all that he has promised. Our world is moving to the return of Jesus and all that comes with that. And then in Moses and the Exodus event, well, there's again a lot that we can say, and let me tell you this, Moses and the Mosaic Covenant are discussed throughout the New Testament. And the Exodus event is spoken throughout the Bible. But just one significant thing I want us to take from Moses and the Exodus event, one significant thing. Just as God delivered his people through the blood of a lamb over that door from their enslavement to the Egyptians, let's move it forward and see that today that pictures God's deliverance of his people through the blood of the lamb from our enslavement to sin. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for each of us. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every time you see and hear Lamb, think of the Passover and the sacrifice and what that accomplished. And there is so much, so much more, but let's finish with David and all those kings and that eventual exile that took place. Now remember, we said the people continued to long for, for a Davidic king to fulfill those promises that God made to David because they knew that God is faithful to his promises. And even as they were in exile, they would write things. And, and Ezekiel, for one, we'll look at Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel would write something like this. Ezekiel 37, 24. My servant David will be king over them. Folks, this is 500 years, well, 400 years after David is dead. Okay, so it's, it's talking about that promise that God made. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Ezekiel, by the way, was taken away in the second time that Babylon came in, around 595 B.C. So he was in exile when he wrote that. Now listen to Jeremiah 33, 33, 14, and 15, and it'll be, uh, 14 through 17. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Jeremiah writes, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, I'm going to fulfill that promise, I guarantee it. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And so the people were longing for the day that God would fulfill these promises when he would send the Messiah of Israel. Now go back to our reading that you heard from Luke 1. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her, you're going to be with child. <gasps> you're going to have a child conceived of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what was said of this child then? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then Zacharias, the one that we said talked about the Abrahamic covenant, 
30 verses later, and also in Luke chapter 1, says this about Jesus. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Jesus fulfilling the Davidic promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7. And of course, there's more. Matthew says that Jesus is in the line of David. On several occasions in the book of Matthew, Jesus is called the son of David. Now, they didn't anticipate two comings of the Messiah. None of them did. But nonetheless, the link of Jesus to David is replete throughout the New Testament. And then you get to the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. You get to chapter 5, and you have God the Father the, sitting on the throne, and he has the scroll in his hand, seven seals, and no one is found worthy to come up and take that scroll from his hand. And John is weeping because no one is found worthy. And then he's told, stop weeping. You don't need to weep. The line from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And up, lo and behold, who comes up? One who looks as, as if as a lamb that had been slain. Jesus comes up. And then we go to the last chapter. The very last chapter of the book of the Bible. The book of Revelation chapter 22. And there we read, the speaker says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The one who is speaking is none other than Jesus. Folks, Israel wanted a king. They desperately wanted a king, but they didn't need one since they had God. But God gave them a king. And in the end, guess what? They get a king. God promises them an eternal king. And it's God himself, God the Son, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Bringing it all back around fully again. It's pretty amazing. We could talk for hours, folks, on this stuff. The Old Testament gives us so much depth into who God is. It explains so much about Jesus. We see God's plan coming around full circle. But if we don't know it, we have no chance. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, after he was resurrected, is walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And he explains to those two weary disciples who are saddened over the death of Jesus. They don't recognize him. And he explains from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible to the prophets, and how they pointed to him. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is indeed the answer. He's the answer to many of these, these issues. Realize that God is bringing about his plan, his promises to completion through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the first coming, he, he took care of a lot. He's going to finish it in his second coming. Because God is faithful. God's big picture that you and I are a part of. That big picture plan is moving to an inevitable end. The return of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of all his promises. And so the question for you is this. What part are you currently playing in that plan? We've talked about how glorious this plan is from Adam into the Old Testament through David and, and even into the exile. We talk about how Jesus fulfills that. But what's your part in this? Are you on the outside looking in? In other words, are you not part of God's people? 
because you've not been reconciled with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you still caught in your sins and the the rightful judgment that takes place because of them? Are you somehow trying to earn your way to God as if we put them on a little balance here and the scales weigh out, my good deeds outweigh my bad, I'm good to go? Or have you had that debt paid by somebody else because you can't pay it? Have you had that debt paid for by Jesus on the cross when you came to him as your only hope of salvation? See, that's where it all begins. By grace, through faith in Jesus. Once that happens, then you are a part of God's big picture. You are a part of what he's doing here on this earth in the year 2013. And then the question becomes very different. Once you've come to Christ for salvation, then the questions become, how well are you living out your faith? Are you actively sharing your faith and thus living out the Great Commission? Are you proclaiming the excellencies of God, the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Are you growing in your trust in God? That's what should be happening next. Living out your faith to the glory of God. That's what we're all called to do. And so if you're not doing that right now, you say, oh, I've come to Christ for salvation, but you know what, I'm still living a mess of a life, then I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you that before Pastor Samuel gets back, your life begins to be changed dramatically. And it's because you start doing some things that aren't that difficult to do but they require action on your part. They require you saying, I'm going to intentionally make something important in my life. I'm going to give it a priority. And I'm going to do things like make it a daily habit to spend time with God in His Word. I'm going to make it a daily habit to spend time with God in prayer. I heard you all talking when you came in. I know that means you can pray. Just talking with God instead of one another. I want to encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead you day by day. Wake up in the morning and ask, God, what do you have for me this day? I want to live this day for you. Can you do that when you go to work? Absolutely. Should you? Absolutely. You never know how your life may change the life of one person and how that life will then change a whole family. I come from no believers until my brother... 20 years later, I became a believer. 10 years later after that, my other brother. Three brothers out of a family of no believers. Two are pastors and the other is a deacon of his church. It took time. It took a lot of prayer. It took people sharing the gospel. And it took an almighty God to change my heart. And so then I want you to be reminded of your salvation just like I need to be every day, and then to bask in the wonders of God's grace. What a beautiful, glorious thing. Let us do these things and get into that daily habit. And then like our closing song that we're about to sing, let us worship his holy name, for he is indeed worthy of all our praise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have 
We've laid a lot of scripture on these folks. We've covered a lot of what you've done from the creation till the time of the exiles and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God, I would be remiss if we don't allow your Holy Spirit to work in somebody's heart right now who may not have entered this room given their lives to Jesus Christ. And I mean giving it to Christ alone and not counting on any of their works, but Jesus alone and his work, what he accomplished on the cross. And so God, if it's in your good pleasure to move the heart of someone to give up, to give up their striving with you and, str and striving to, to earn heaven, but to just rest in the work of Jesus Christ, the completed, finished work of Christ, and just call out in faith. God, I pray that you would do that and that they would know through putting their faith in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that they too may enter into this wonderful family of God, reconciled with you, redeemed, redeemed from their enslavement to sin. God, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those who are here who just aren't living the life that would please you. I pray, God, that you would encourage them this morning by what they've heard, that you would work in their hearts. And God, that they would commit themselves to spending more time with you, to giving you controls of the reins of their life so that they're not people who go to work and bring you with them that you go with them wherever they go, that they are Christians first, and God, that you would use them in a mighty way to impact Austin and the surrounding communities, to bring glory to your name, to bring others into the kingdom, that they would be growing disciples of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for each of them who are here. I ask you to bless this church and bless them, God. May they be in awe of the wonders of your grace. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Please stand and let us sing one final song of praise to our almighty God. Oh, my soul, worship his holy name. your holy name the sun comes up it's a new day dawning it's time to sing your song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never.
worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing ten thousand years with my heart to find bless the Lord my soul oh my soul worship his holy name sing like me I worship your holy name. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise unending ten thousand years and then forevermore bless the lord my soul Worship His holy name Sing like never before Oh my soul I worship Your holy name Bless the Lord my soul Oh my soul Worship His holy name Sing like never before Oh my soul I worship Your holy name I worship Your holy name I worship Your holy Oh, 